It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome once again, listeners, to the Two Jacks, where we look at all matters overseas and in Hong Kong, of course, including Hong Kong, where uh, my great buddy HK Jack lives. How are you, mate? I'm well. And then we'll get to matters all Australian, but we've got to kick it off with Hong Kong because uh, a uh, a justice of the court there has been found to do the old Control-C, Control-V quite a bit in terms of his judgments, Jack. He did. A Hong Kong judge has been admonished for the flagrant copying of submissions made by the plaintiff's lawyers in a dispute over trademarks. Um, the, uh, he's been a judge for 10 years and he replicated more than 98% of the winning party's arguments in his 53-page ruling. Uh, the Court of Appeal heard that there was not one full sentence written in the <laughs> trial judge's own words. Uh, 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 which is so – that's kind of embarrassing, really. It is a um, little bit embarrassing. It, um, it it's is. A sort of, it's the sort of thing, if uh, if a journalist pulled a stunt like that, they would be out on their ears fairly smartly. Um, anyway, the Court of, Appeal, Court of Appeal chucked out his ruling and it's been sent back. This is um, uh, an occupational hazard for anyone, anybody of us who's made – judicial or administrative decisions that are subject to appeal. Every now and again, the court above you is going to give you a hosing out. It certainly happened to me. Well, it, it certainly sort of uh, should have happened uh, in the case of Mr Justice Wilson Chan Kashun, who we can also call Scissorhands, Jack. Should we call yeah, him Scissorhands? Yeah, yeah, I think we probably can safely because you can in any event. All right. Uh, yes, a uh, bit of plagiarism there. Most it, it is the worst sin in journalism, but uh, in the judiciary, not so much. Um, a worst sin, but a very common one. Yeah, I, I mean, so he's, he, he's basically, in, in his judgment, he just cut and paste from, um, uh, from, uh, plaintiff's, uh, from plaintiff's submissions. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. No. Oh, well, you know. Well, I go to all that bother of coming up with your own words. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Jack, coming back home, Andrew Hasty um, has uh, uh, called on the government to consider establishing a joint committee on defence to allow MPs to question ADF officials, uh, sometimes in private classified hearings, in the same way the powerful Joint Intelligence Committee in the US can, can probe its spy agencies. I must say, Andrew Hasty comes out of the uh, Ben Robert Smith matter in very good shape. What do you make of that, Jack? What do you make of that? I think that's a sensible thing, isn't it? I think it's a very good idea myself. Um, they already do that with the spy agencies, but they just don't do it with the Defence Force. And Andrew Hasty made the, the, the good point that the MPs have a closer relationship with the security chiefs than they do with the defence chiefs because they get to question them and invariably have a coffee afterwards or whatever. So they, they have a, a, an informal understanding of what's going on and that's probably needed with the military as well. I would think so. And, and given that the SAS, the SASR, 
is a predominant first strike force, Jack. Um, when uh, when we venture into uh, other countries, uh, it's generally not the fourth RAR or the fifth RAR. Uh, it's the uh, it's the SAS doing that work, and their um, work is often shrouded in secrecy. So uh, we really need to sort of break that down a little bit, don't we? You know, in in, in terms of confidential briefings. Uh, to MPs at least. Yeah, perhaps if um, uh, somebody else had had a little bit of oversight of that, they might have come to the conclusion that having the SASR do a long-term um, deployment um, was not such a, a flash idea. Not such a flash idea, and and, and, and absolutely agree with you there, and, and that's because uh, our politicians, senior politicians, are saying, well, we'll use the SAS in this fashion because it it, it um, uh, detracts from uh, a, a full mobilisation. Yes, uh, but, but but really, the SASR jo- its job is to uh, get in and achieve some objectives, kill some enemy, and get out. Um, um, its its role is not normally as a long term uh, yes, enforcement exactly. role. Um, mm-hmm. Excellent work from Andrew Hasty, who's. Uh, evidence given at the BRS BRS uh, trial was uh, was outstanding. Um, it must be said he he showed uh, if he if he showed any loyalty, it was a loyalty to the truth, and uh, he needs to be, he needs to receive credit for that. Yeah, the other thing, just generally speaking, as an oversight of the defence force, this would be a good idea. Um, defence has been. Um, historically quite poor at things like procurement, etc., and and to have a, um, a a bit more parliamentary oversight of that could be only a good thing. Yeah. Well, just to wrap up this one, Jack, uh, Mr. Hastie said defence, he was very critical of the defence force for the way it sanitised the war in Afghanistan. Defence ran a very controlled information operation, Hastie said, which I think didn't allow for transparency, that the media would have brought to the conflict. The media is an important and informal part of our governance system. We have a lot of government institutions. Sometimes they fail, and it's the role of the media to ask questions and bring into the light things that are shrouded in darkness. Whether greater media access would have prevented war crimes is a question we'll never know, but I think increased transparency is something we must look towards going forward if we find ourselves in another war. And those are the it's, words of to, Andrew Hester. To me, having, having some media presence is more important than politicians of either stripe whacking on the flak jacket and going over there for a photo op. Yeah, exactly right. And, and of course, media uh, was heavily controlled in, in, in Afghanistan uh, as it was. You know, uh, I think governments learned, certainly the Australian government and the American government, learned from the Vietnam War where we saw it all in all its ugliness uh, and decided it'd be a close shop pretty much from that time on. Oh, they also learned from um, that these were dangerous places for journalists, very m- much more dangerous than Vietnam. Um, one needs only think of Daniel Pearl, um, uh, who was in Pakistan at the time, um, who thought he was dealing with honest brokers um, uh, from the Islamist side, uh, and um, he met a grisly end. All right. Um, now, another MP, Jack, another coalition MP, uh, Warren Inch, who's uh, been in the parliament for a very, very long time. I think he's uh, fought eight elections and had seven wins. Uh, 
uh, he's in a bit of strife, Jack, and it looks like um, he may well be the first cab off the uh, National Anti-Corruption Commission rank. Um, well, he, he, he might beat Senator Gallagher there, you reckon? Oh, well, there'll be a referral. There can be a referral from parliamentarians. I mean, ha, ha, how do we go about it? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But let, let's just stick with what Warren Inch is accused of doing. There was a, a further story about this in the Australian, uh, about his wife receiving a grant uh, from the Morrison government to the tune of $213,000. But uh, the real element here is... Um, uh, uh, Queensland Health referred to Queensland's Triple C, their ICAT, the Crime and Corruption Commission, allegations that Mr. Ench organised for his political donor and friend, billionaire property developer Alex Sekla. Are we allowed to say he's Russian, Jack? Well, he is. Yeah, I suppose you can. Yeah. Uh, and uh, to jump the queue and receive his Pfizer COVID jab, and then less than a year later, on the eve of the federal election last year, Mr. Seckler donated three hundred and four thousand to the LMP, of which three hundred thousand was spent on Mr. Inch's successful campaign to retain the seat of Leichhardt. So, doesn't look my, like a my, nasty- my Pfizer jab was free. Well, there wasn't any Pfizer at the time. Yeah. Uh, it was in very, very short supply in Queensland at the time. And the allegation is that Warren Ench allowed uh, Mr. Seckler to jump the queue. Yeah. Um, um, this is this, this is Cairns. I think the Cairns locals will just sort of shrug their shoulders at this. Oh, they might well, but it's going to be, It's as I said, it's not going to be, uh, he's not going to be knackered. He's going to be uh, subject to investigations by the Crime and Corruption Commission. Uh, in Queensland now. I did note, Jack, that uh, when uh, uh, when Peter Dutton, opposition leader Peter Dutton, yesterday was asked to uh, uh, asked to provide some support for Warren Inch, he was not forthcoming, Jack. Uh, no, there's no plus side for Dutton in supporting him, um, but, you know, I don't think that much will come of it, really. Really? Mm. It's, overtly, it seems... Bit of a problem. You've got you've got um, Ench who denies uh, uh, allowing Seckler to jump the queue, um, but if that can be proven, there's a problem because the quid pro quo seems to have been a, a really substantial donation to uh, to uh, Mr. Ench's campaign. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, we are just looking at the the basic facts at this stage. It will need to be investigated. Uh, the voice, Jack, uh, it went through the Senate yesterday. Um, it received a fairly lively um, uh, critique from Lydia Thorpe, who we'll talk about a little bit later uh, in the Senate yesterday. She has come out now for probably the first time in a year uh, in not supporting uh, the voice. And I would, I would say that she represents um, a voice of her own that, that reflects some indigenous um, uh, some indigenous support in in perhaps in Victoria and also from the left and perhaps the green left. Jack, her her, uh, her criticism of the of the voice is uh, it doesn't it doesn't lead to treaty. We have to have a treaty first. That seems to be her opinion. Um, I, I think there's a a small but um, uh, significant. Uh, support for what she says, but they're numerically insignificant. 
Yeah, I think we're talking in the single-figure percentiles, Jack. Yes, something of that. But order. They certainly aren't going to determine the outcome of the of the referendum. And and I got no problem with that that constituency being represented no. in in None the whatsoever. Senate either. Um, you know, <laughs> when we have a look at some of the senators and what they. Uh, what their little bugbears are, um, you know. There's room for there's room for one and all. Um, the polling is not looking good. A resolved strategic poll on Tuesday showed support for the voice dropping from 53 to 49 percent. Obviously, that would mean that the question would be defeated. With the yes a vote below 50 percent in Queensland, Western Australia, and South Australia. South Australia that's staggering because the the initial polling around South Australia was was in the high 60s, Jack. That's because they have their own version of the voice, but it's quite different. Tell me the differences. What do you know? Oh, look, it's it's, it's legislative rather than constitutional. First up, so it can be altered, um, and um, and and it's it's a you know try it and see it, try it and buy it approach. Um, the uh, the <laughs> my view of the voice hasn't changed over the months. Um, I don't think it's likely to succeed. Um, historically, or in recent history, no referendum proposal has gotten more popular as it's gotten closer to voting day. Um, and so I think it's in a lot of trouble. Uh, I noticed yes. that Mark Kenny, Mark Kenny came out with, he, with his solution to the problem, um, which to, was, was to, for the government to promise, um, uh, the Liberal and the National parties that the, legislation enabling the voice which will pass after the referendum if the referendum passes would have to would have to be approved by a supermajority so that they would effectively have a seat at the table in um, in designing the legislation um, I don't think that's going to save the voice either well a supermajority just just to explain to our listeners a supermajority um, would would be would somewhere be in the thirds. order of 66%. So yeah, two-thirds. Two-thirds. Uh, and and two-thirds of the parliament uh, in a joint sitting would have to come up with a yep. uh, uh, with a, with a supermajority in order to uh, to amend legislation. Um, doesn't that just create more chaos, Jack? Uh, yes, but and, and, it won't, and it won't say, I think the voice is not quite dead in the water, but pretty close to it. Um. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews says campaigners for the voice to Parliament need to get out there and fight by knocking on doors and talking directly to voters in workplaces and sporting clubs as polling shows faltering support. Um, is that what's needed, Jack? Because there's been none, nothing of that kind so far. So really, does the Yes Voice have the, the, the level of volunteers to get that to get that sort of grassroots activity happening. I, I don't think that's there, is it? I don't think it is, and I don't think it would matter. I think the thing, what's wrong with the voice is the proposal and the process that's been gone through, and I don't think any any kind of campaign is going to save that. I must say, I saw it's, Linda It's a Burney, wasted opportunity. I saw Linda Burney talking about... Um, uh, talking about uh, how she she has she re, she remains as does uh, Anthony Albanese eternally optimistic about this, and she thinks that uh, well Albanese said that history was ours to be made. The world is watching. Uh, Troy Bramston said today there was a a, a, a short sweep of uh, of op eds in the Australian today. I might have a crack myself tomorrow, um, uh, but I noticed also Linda Burney. 
Um, and look, I, I don't want to reflect poorly on her. I think she's a, a terrific Indigenous Affairs Minister. But um, uh, is she the right person to be driving this, Jack? Um, well, I don't know who else they've got who's going to do a, a, a better job. She's, she's been okay at it. I, I don't think the problem's with Linda Burney. The problem's right at the top and with the people who designed the process and the proposal. Well, tell me, tell me. I mean, for people who haven't heard your your objections to the voice, tell me, tell me what they are. Well, well, well. Firstly, the process has been wrong. They spent depends on who you listen to. Somewhere between six and twenty years consulting with the indigenous community about what this constitutional recognition should look like. Then they spent very little time at all negotiating with the other 90% of the population. And that's just wrong because the constitution belongs to all of us and all of us have to get on board. The only way you can amend the constitution in Australia is to get a pretty chunky majority of Australians to agree with you. And that takes time and it takes work and it takes consultation. And that was never done with the wider Australian community. And then the problem... Then the proposal's wrong. It gets its, gets a whole chapter in the Constitution, um, which um, invites the High Court to give it um, a similar status to the Parliament and the Executive and the Courts. Um, uh, and no one knows for sure how the High Court's going to treat it. In fact, even the yes proponents don't agree on how the High Court will look at this. So it's just been a flawed process and a flawed proposal from day one. But I have to take exception with the fact that you, you would regard it as uh, having similar authority to the parliament and to the executive and to the bureaucracy. It certainly doesn't, does it? It, it sits outside. Well, no, no, what, what, what I said precisely was, what I said, it invites the High Court to come to that conclusion by giving it its own chapter. And no yeah. one knows for sure what the High Court's going to do with this if it ever gets through. I don't think it will. Um, no one knows for sure, and in fact, the, the yes proponents can't agree on what the High Court will do with it. I was talking to a friend uh, in uh, who lives in London. We were talking about the Voice, and uh, he had similar concerns to yours, Jack. And I said, "Well, look at this from a policy area. Look at this from a policy area. Let's let's talk about grog bans in remote and indigenous remote indigenous communities." Um. The, the, and, and, and how the voice might change that. So the voice is a bottom up, uh, group. So there are, there are local, there are local elders who drive it at, at community level all the way up to the sort of Canberra voice, if you like. And those people will provide their own input into these things. What, what, I guess what we're saying is the old way and the current way is for essentially white men to determine uh, what should be going on in Indigenous communities, uh, <clears throat> whereas the voice will allow uh, uh, people to say, this is what our community needs. For good or ill, those are the right people to be making those decisions. That's what I view. That's why I think the voice is important. I think the voice is also important um, because, uh, you know, we could, we could ask as old white men ourselves, Jack, what's in it for us? And and what's in it for us potentially is reconciliation and a nation at peace with itself. Uh, yes, I don't think that's going to happen. All right. Um, we'll move on because we don't we don't know where that's going, but we do know now that that 
you know, that October date for a referendum looks to be about right. Yeah. Look, I, I just want to add, to, for the sake of clarity, um, I have no problem with having a, a constitutional referendum to recognise First Australians. Um, I think that would pass with an overwhelming majority. Um, it's where you go from there that gets tricky, um, and I think the government has utterly failed to put up a process and a proposal that, to take the, the majority of Australian people along with it, and I think that's a dreadful wasted opportunity. But what well, constitutional recognition of First Australians, Jack, in, in the absence of anything else, in the absence of a voice, what, it's just, it's, that is just pure symbolism. Well, 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 I'm saying that's very popular and you could add stuff onto that, but the government hasn't got the proposal right and hasn't got the process right. And that's a, waste, about, that's a waste you, of opportunity. You've got structural disadvantage in Australia, mm. right, particularly around Indigenous Australians, and constitutional recognition is really going to be hollow on its own. Is going to be just hollow symbolism. It's not going to. It, it's not it, going it, to change disadvantage. It doesn't need to be on its own. What goes with it needed a proper process and a proper proposal. All right. Um, uh, the Liam and Higgins saga. Uh, the debate goes on. I saw. Um, well, there's been a, a flurry of. Um, a flurry of op-eds there, Jack, and most notably, you might call him Guy Rundle, a crikey, Jack. His real name is Guy, by the way, and I insist that you call him Guy. He's Guy de Maupassant. He he, um, uh, adopts the French pronunciation, does he? He does. It's a little bit affected, but, look, I I would never judge. Um, I'm I'm a big fan of Guy de Maupassant, so um, uh, I'm happy to go along with Guy Rundle. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know how Guy Rundle um, uh, figures in all of that, but it is Guy, not Guy, folks. Uh, And he wrote a piece. It's not going to matter. I think he's finished. um, (laughs) That was the most extraordinary thing I've said. I I sort of arrived, uh, uh, I think, uh, quite late on Twitter, and, and a good friend of mine posted me, what is the sort of internet archive of the article? The crikey had already mm. taken it down, and uh, and uh, my good friend Dan Nolan, I'm happy to mention his name here. He he said, "Here's the here's the internet uh, basically archive of that article that uh, had come down uh, by the orders of Crikey's editors," and he said, "It really is something, isn't it?" And and I, <laughs> and I said, "It really is something." He, he had basically in commentary. He had basically determined that Brittany Higgins had made everything up, Jack. Yes. Um, well, and given the readership of the of Crikey, um, I think this uh, he was talking about uh, being found naked on a uh, on your on the minister's couch, being a career career ender. I think writing that article might be a career ender as well. <laughs> career killer is a term he used. That's right. So, um, Jack. Um, uh, <laughs> Firstly, just with, just with the crikey staff, I mean, there was a shift there, um, you know, people uh, calling for boycotts, uh, calling for uh, uh, people to unsubscribe. Uh, it's a subscriber-based uh, online news agency. Um, and um, uh, you have to wonder about editorial process in this case, don't you? Uh, you have to wonder whether there were any. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a reasonable point to make because if that stuff came across my came across my desk, I'd be going, uh, listen, Guy, 
uh, uh, Guy, uh, have another crack at that, will you, please, Chair? Uh, or you can have a crack at something else, but but uh, we're not publishing that. Well, you just might say this is – he had some legitimate points to make, but you might, you might just decide this is not suitable for our readership. Uh, in the end, Jack, I mean, people talk about bias and all that sort of stuff. It's well worth talking about this, that – when I write for the Australian, I write mindful of the readership. That's not you have to be terrified of, of criticism and all that sort of stuff. You have to write for the people, who, for your audience. It's the, kind of like a first rule in journalism and, uh, and, and it's one that's often overlooked or misunderstood. Um, but that's, that's Guy's uh, problems and uh, I presume they won't act on him just right away, but it, it might uh, take a while. Now, you've, you've popped in a few uh, comments there, uh, a, a, a bit of uh, clips from uh, op-eds and maybe a Twitter thing. We've got Paul Kelly in The Australian, we've got Barry Cassidy and we've got Amy Ramikis. Um, Jack, I'm, uh, <coughs> that we've included there, there, were, there, were a lot more, there was a lot more comment on this than that. Um, uh, there is only one. Um, um, Amy stands out in that small group um, because she's one, a woman, and two, has been subject to um, a, a sexual assault. I know Amy quite well, and I hope I'm not doing uh, her a disservice by mentioning this, but um, and I think she has written about it. Uh, and she says, why are we pretending that workplace misconduct? Now, this is not Brittany Higgins. This is the... Uh, David Vance blow up, Olivia Thorpe blow up that she's dealing with that. Why are we pretending that workplace misconduct is not something which is dealt with privately by workplaces every single day and Parliament is somehow immune and can only be properly dealt with by police? Do people understand that there is a threshold of criminality? To take it to the, take it to the police br- brigade, enough. You'd uh, be the first screaming that police were being clogged up with matters that should be dealt with through workplace processes if Lydia Thorpe had chosen that route. Um, Paul Kelly talks about the Australian uh, using the leaked text messages and he says, as for the claim the Australian stories will discourage women from reporting sexual abuse, no. The story, if it has any impact, might discourage people pursuing rape allegations by media, publicity and politics. That's what happened here, and to pretend otherwise is to deny the central chain of events. The story is a morality tale on the consequences of such politically driven, publicity-seeking behaviour. And Barry Cassidy, just to round it off, Jack, this is a complete misrepresentation. Brittany Higgins and the opposition at the time were not pursuing rape allegations via the media. They were challenging the government's handling of the matter. Significant difference. I presume that's from a tweet. That's from, a tweet uh, responding to Paul Kelly's article. That was the um, response, yeah. Having watched all of the um, uh, the now having watched all of the reporting and the videos and heaven knows what the uh, uh, you know, both interviews with Bruce Lerman and Brittany Higgins, um, I'm back where I started. Um, I'm satisfied. I have no idea what happened in Parliament House that night. Um, there's two different stories, at least. Um, uh, perhaps one of them is telling the truth, perhaps neither of them are telling the truth. Um, uh, but what I would say, where I would agree with Paul Kelly, is this, um, all the people who say um, we were doing this out of support for Brittany Higgins, somebody should have said to the young person, do not do this through the media because it will come back and bite you. Yeah, okay. 
Now, to the broader it's, issue, it's a bit. It's a bit like we say about the the, the John Elliott uh, mistake is is that if you take a defamation action, or what Ben Robert Smith did, if you take a defamation action, you put your character uh, on, on on the chopping block as well. And if you pursue these allegations through the media, that's what you're doing, and it won't all go well for you. And so, you know. I just think it. I think the people who claim to have cared about her, someone needed to say this is not a good plan. Okay, all right. Um, where does this all leave uh, Katie Gower, the uh, finance minister? Um, I think I said last week. I think she'll survive this, and she will. She'd survived it a lot better. Better if she'd come out and and made a straightforward apology to Linda Reynolds um, on the on the Monday or the Tuesday of last week, and said, "Look, if I had my time over again, Senator Reynolds, I would have responded differently to your comment." End of. That's it. And if she'd done that, the whole thing would have gone away. Well, she also mentioned that she'd actually had a meeting with Linda Reynolds. And that at that meeting, um, it, it was made clear to Linda Reynolds that Katie Gallagher did have you know, information about the uh, mm. the alleged uh, sexual assault. But she needed to make that comment. She needed to make that plain in the Senate, mm. not at a private meeting. Well, Katie Gallagher is is uh, as you as you predicted going to survive. We know that, but there's been a sort of. Uh, uh, a detente uh, in in uh, among the major parties, the government and the coalition, over this because, um, uh, and, I, and I wrote a column about this on Friday, saying the the, the wrong way to look at this was to say uh, that the coalition, you know, look at this from a sort of political, t- politically tactical uh, perspective, and and that was uh, that the coalition started out the week. Um, zeroing in on Katie Gallagher and perhaps other members of the government, um, but uh, but ended up having to deflect its own concerns about one of its own members, one of its own senators, uh, David Van, a Victorian senator there, when Lydia Thorpe came forward and made allegations about him and other men. Um, and that seemed to sort of bring about a... Uh, a rapprochement, Jack, uh, between the two warring parties, and I'd suggest now this has moved into another sphere. What's the Cold War, ter- Cold War term? Mutually assured destruction. Um, there yeah. seems to be a bit of that going on. So I wrote a piece, and I noticed uh, David Pemberthy wrote a terrific piece uh, on the weekend um, uh, for the uh, for the News Corp uh, tabloids, um, ran in all of them. Uh, and, and I offered my apologies to Lydia Thorpe because, and I'm sure not the only one. In fact, Bembo also acknowledged he made the same mistake. That when when Lydia Thorpe first came forward with her allegations about David Van and other members of uh, not just of Parliament but other workers within the within the walls of the Parliament, uh, we didn't take her seriously, Jack. We thought it was well, another sort of performative outrage. Well, I think people were sceptical about it, and I'm a natural sceptic at most things, um, but um, uh, I think a degree of scepticism about Lydia Thorpe's performative nonsense is warranted. Now, um, scepticism means shouldn't be shouldn't mean disbelieving. It should just mean I'm sceptical. I'll wait for some, some further confirmation or evidence. Well, confirmation did come in yes. the form of a statement from former Senator Amanda Stoker, um, 
uh, former Queensland Senator Amanda Stoker, who uh, alleged that David Dan and, and somebody else, I believe, as well. There is a third person unnamed, yeah. yeah. Uh, and David Van uh, went from uh, uh, responding to Lydia Thorpe's uh, allegations with outrage to basically being shuffled off uh, and out of the party room at the uh, at the direction of uh, Peter Dutton. Uh, he is likely to be expelled from the Liberal Party. I don't think that's happened yet. Um, where does he go I think now? he's resigned from the Liberal Party in any event. Right, okay. There, yeah, good point. Yeah, so the, the expulsion motion would be unnecessary. They might still go through with it uh, for a little bit of tilted symbolism. Um, uh, where does he now go, Jack? I, I, uh, the, the crossbench is becoming a bit heavy with some very strange characters, and he would, I'd suggest, would uh, be just another addition to one of those. The alleged sex pest. Uh, sitting up in the corner there, um, uh, elected to the Senate by uh, by by sheer weight of uh, being number three on the ticket. Well, you're not supposed to win from, by the way, if you're in the major parties, if you're number three on the ticket. And he was number three on the ticket in 2019 uh, when uh, when the Australian people decided they didn't like the look of Bill Shorten very much, and uh, and and that third. Uh, Senate spot went to the coalition, and uh, David Van was elected as senator. Now, is he? Get, do you think he's going to continue to sit in the crossbench? Just give me your yes. opinion. Of course, he, of course, he will. Well, we should. Um, uh, it's up to him. I suppose he can resign if he wants to. I don't know why he would. Um, uh, you know, the, the crossbench does look a bit like the bar in the Star Wars um, thing. It's full of full of the weird and the wonderful. Um, but he's perfectly entitled to, to, to take his seat up there. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I, I, I just just don't know how that's going to look. I think it's going to look pretty bad. But um, not much, uh, not much worse than it looks now. <laughs> um, I did notice that when Lydia Thorpe uh, made her second speech to the Parliament, the one uh, where she um, uh, withdrew her previous comments just because she'd made them outside the standing orders. Uh, and then uh, renewed the allegations against uh, David Van. Well, well, she, she, and, and she made a much others. more measured and believable contribution the second time around. Uh, well, look, I, I mean, in in the circumstances when she, you know, she, she was responding in the, the first speech outside the standing orders was responding to David Van, and David Van talking about uh, how uh, how appalling it was that uh, women were being preyed upon in the parliament. Uh, <clears throat> which uh, people can make, make their own judgments about. So I can understand her getting to her feet and pretty unhappy about all of that. Mm. Um, I did see from an unnamed liberal source, Jack, over the weekend that uh, there was uh, some suggestions or nothing specific, but, uh, yes, we'd all heard a little bit about David Van. I, <clears throat> I went and had a little bit of a look into his background, Jack. Um, he is, uh, uh, he's got a, uh, a Bachelor of... Um, uh, of international uh, politics, um, and uh, and he's also worked as a PR. He worked for some fairly significant PR companies, and then started his own. Um, and uh, that seemed to be, sort of become defunct around 2016, 2017, just in terms of social media. Now they might have taken a lot of stuff down, but you would think a PR company is going to have a fair amount of social media 
activity, but there doesn't seem to be a lot there. There was the strange video where he was uh, at the PR awards, some sort of PR award night, where he uh, was talking to the interviewer who's, and he's told them that he uh, uh, that he works in a, in a, in a workplace where 80% of, uh, uh, of the employees are women and he loves to work with women, Jack. Uh, yeah, I did say that. Yeah, did you? Yeah, I thought it was a bit. Um... I must say, it's not only. Uh, I know PR companies that have very little social media presence, that but their clients have plenty of social media presence, but they themselves have almost none. Well, whole whole point of PR these days, Jack, is that you know if you want to uh, deal with, let's just say, crisis management. Uh, they'll they'll bring in someone and say, this person over here is a social media expert, and this is what we want you to do. Hmm. Um, and and I, just, I was I was pretty astonished to find that a uh, that a PR company uh, would have such small um, social media re- representation. There was one there. I think the last post I could find was saying we're starting the blog again, and uh, there was one entry, and that was that. So um, <coughs> maybe some stuff had come down, but it, it just yeah. I, I I suspect there are some journalists sort of. Uh, in, of the investigative type of having a bit of a look at all of this now. Was he denied natural justice, Jack? Um, it, from what we can see publicly, it seems that he was, but that's a matter, internal matter for the Liberal Party, um, uh, and we don't know what happened. We know we had a conversation with Peter Dutton. We don't know the, the content of that conversation. We don't know what was put to him. We don't have no idea about that. From the public view, he probably was, but that's a matter for them. Okay. Well, we're going to draw a line under that specific case because we want to talk a little bit about sexual assaults in the criminal justice system. Um, And at the turn of the century, there was a spike in reporting of sexual assaults. And uh, that has declined in the last 10 years. Now, I wouldn't be so bold as to say the sexual assaults had reduced. What I'm saying is that... The changes to the system across the states and territories, um, more empathetic police, uh, uh, um, uh, more more uh, uh, concerted investigative uh, activity uh, and changes to the way in which victims gave evidence in courtrooms, for example, uh, where they can uh, give them off-site um, on, on video rather than being in the courtroom itself. These things actually led to, these changes actually led to a, a, a spike in reporting of sexual assaults that almost 10 years later had went into decline. And that tells me, if I'm able to interpret on that, to interpret those crime stats, that, that, that basically a lot of women have lost faith in the system. And, and I know this from, from uh, from the victims of child sexual assault, Jack. It's not a very good system. It's an adversarial system, uh, the prosecutorial system, the criminal criminal justice system. But let's just think of it in in, in line of what a victim would go through. <coughs> a, a victim comes forward, reports the matter to police, and when it's not an historical matter, they'll be subject to forensic testing. They'll make a sworn statement, uh, and then. That's pretty much it for a little while, and then the police will uh, conduct their investigations. What com- what communication they have with police on going 
can be little or nothing. And then they'll be advised that someone, they may, it may well be advised, you know, we're getting into a narrowing number of cases now, uh, that, that the, uh, the alleged perpetrator is being brought to, is being charged and is, is, is going to appear before court. Now that victim becomes more or less a witness at that time, Jack. And that person will have to, that victim will have to sit outside the court. That victim will have no representation in court. The prosecutor has a different set of objectives to the victim. Uh, and, and that person will be dragged in to give testimony subject to cross examination. And then they'll be excused. And then I'll go and sit outside again. And the last time they'll be able to go into the court if they want to is to see the verdict come down. And that just sort of strikes me as being very unfair. What do you think should happen? Well, at, at the very least, there should be legal representation permissible in, a, in, in, a, in, in matters of sexual assault. You know, as I said to you, these pe- the people here can be subject to um, rather a strenuous and vigorous uh, uh, cross-examination, but do so without any legal representation in court. The prosecutor, as I said, is not that is not the victim's defender, uh, <coughs> and and they won't act that way. So no, that's, the, prosecu- the, the prosecution is required to put the matter before the court um, and be fair to um, to both parties. It, it's not um, it, it oughtn't to be in there seeking a conviction. Um, it ought to be putting a, um, a, a case for conviction um, uh, to the to the court. Yes, I, 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 I totally agree with that. That's the role of the prosecutor. Yes. But the victim walks into that courtroom without representation. Yes. That's, I think, what needs to. That's what needs to change in in matters of sexual assault. And I've spoken to a number of victims of child sexual assault who had the same experience that they just felt that they were so vulnerable in a courtroom. Um, <coughs> it's an it's it's a really Interesting way to, to 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 look at this. We we really need to ha- do need to have a look at this. I mean, we saw with uh, with the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Assault, we saw that you know the reporting levels, and there's a whole lot raft of reasons for this, not just around the criminal justice system, but the reporting was delayed in the case of men. I think it was 24 years, in the case of women, it was 22 years, um, because this is an adversarial system that doesn't deal with victims very well. Hmm. Well, you it's know, certainly imperfect. It, it certainly is imperfect when we come to these sorts of matters. All right, and, it's a, and, and to be fair, it's a um, it's it's a difficult balancing act. Yes, um, because you've got um, uh, um, uh, someone who's making an allegation, someone defending an allegation, um, and the, the the system ought to be fair to both. Needs to be fair to both. Yeah. Uh, and, that's, and that's sometimes a hard balance to make. It, it, it is a hard balance to make. I, I just think it's a really important discussion to have because that we can make some um, uh, we can make some uh, some reforms to to uh, to how the courts deal with these matters, in particularly uh, particularly in regard to child sexual assaults and and sexual assaults more generally. It's a good discussion to have and. And listen to those people who have been through this process and you'll find, yeah, gee whiz, you really did not get treated in, in any sort of way that I would regard as fair. Uh, 
I just make one point. Um, uh, I certainly agree that the, the, the legal system, uh, system of justice, is imperfect in dealing with this. Um, uh, but if you think they do a bad job, just look at what the media did with um, uh, the Brittany Higgins oh, Bruce Lemon thing. Yeah, that, yeah. It, it, it's it's a very good point that you make there, Jack. That it, you 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 really don't want these matters to be tried in the media. Um, uh, that is, the criminal justice system might be imperfect, but that that uh, that is just a, a deranged way of dealing with things. Um, and, 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 and I think it's clear from the Sofranoff inquiry that the legal system didn't do a great job with the, with the Higgins-Lerman um, uh, case, um, but they did a much better job than, than the media did. Yeah, look, just as a... Just as a, uh, a bit of a tangent and a little bit of a, a little bit of a promo to the conditional release program, we uh, uh, most recently uh, looked at uh, a true crime historical matter, and uh, one of the police officers we that we dealt with there, Victoria police officer by the name of Paul Higgins, old assumption boy, mate. Um, he was a serial rapist. He's likely to have had, you know, victims in the dozens. He was also involved in standover rackets in brothels, so you can imagine there'd be sexual assaults going on there too. One of his victims uh, was just a woman living in an apartment and um, uh, and next door lived next door to Paul Higgins' then girlfriend. And Higgins arrived on her doorstep and said, well, you know, your girlfriend's not home. Can I wait inside here? And proceeded to rape her. Uh, and then she went to the police the following day, did everything she was supposed to have done, and uh, the police, uh, the policeman who, who took who, who took her her, her initial report, uh, and when she mentioned the name Paul Higgins, he put his pen down and said, "You may as well go home. There's nothing we can do for you." Yeah. All right, bad story, but uh, but do have a listen to it. There, there's uh, there's murders and all sorts of mayhem uh, historically in it. In uh, in Victoria, around the, the life of Chris Flannery, um, how's the, the government doing generally, Jack? Their, their polling's reasonably good. I mean, the honeymoon. Gee, wish you wouldn't mind a honeymoon going this long, would you? You know, it's it's been uh, year and a year and a bit. Um, <laughs> might, be, might be a little bit expensive and a little bit exhausting, Jack. Yeah. For men of our right. age, at least. Um, um, but uh, the honey, I, I, I really dislike the term, you know, political honeymoons yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Uh, their polling's good. They've got they've got some economic problems. That's where I think they've got some big problems. And I think the really big issue for all governments going forward, particularly federal governments, is housing. And they've got uh, uh, they've got some problems in those two areas, particularly around inflation and then around housing. Housing's going to be the big, big electoral issue for uh, for Australia going forward. Yeah, I think they've got three three problems or four problems, really. Uh, one of them is a, a mix of the inflation and the housing problem. They're, they're kind of intertwined to some extent. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think they're a problem with the voice and they've got some problems that they're, for the first time, they're losing a bit of skin um, uh, with some skirmishes in the Senate and the House. Talking to a friend and no, colleague And those things aren't terribly important, but they're bad for morale. Yeah. Uh, look, a little bit of skin. I wouldn't say we're talking about uh, massive hemorrhaging at this stage, no. um, but the things that are looming for them are inflation in order to get 
you know, things like wages under control, um, um, put some productivity into the system, but you've got to slay the dragon because if you, if you, uh, you know, your, your basic staples are going up by near enough to 10% every year, you've got a problem and your wages are sitting at 4%, uh, you've got a problem. And people can't sustain that with their savings for very long. So there will be some anger around inflation if they can't bring it into that acceptable level of around 3%. And I think, as I said, housing is a huge issue. And we have really, Australians are sort of split down the middle between those who buy and those who who have bought and and are bearing mortgages and all the pain that's associated with that and those who are facing a sort of a uh, a rental crisis in Australia. Uh, and the, the two, you know, the, the two can only, can't really meet terribly well because once you bring in cheap public housing or, uh, shall we say, social housing, that will actually reduce the value of the, of the housing that people have already invested in and have mortgages with. So there's, there's, it's a really tough one to fix. The, the, the obvious answer is to provide more housing. To, to, to deal with the demand side of things, but that comes with all sorts of political problems. Yeah, um, we have a similar problem in Hong Kong is that, is that real estate here is um, uh, ridiculously overpriced. Um, uh, Hong, Kong, Hong Kong is the only people who moved to Tokyo and New York to find a flat that's a little bit bigger and cheaper. Um, the, um, and, and there are all sorts of historical reasons for that, but they become very hard to unravel, very hard to fix because there are so many vested interests in it. All, yeah. the people who, all the people who have already got an expensive house, they don't want to see the house value drop. Yeah. Um, so. in, in fact, many of them are leveraged on the basis of the value of, the ha- of their yeah. houses. Yeah. Um, and so if you say, well, your house is worth $2 million today, but next year it'll only be worth one point eight because we've added enormous amounts of housing supply, which is really sort of yeah. probably not going to happen. Then, but but, you, but then, you, then you have a political problem in the, in the, in the case and, of the and, and our tax system, our tax system has encouraged people to view... Uh, the family home, not just as somewhere to live, but as somewhere to accumulate capital. Yeah. And the problem comes when you retire, Jack, and you've only got the house and you don't have the income. You have a lot of people who are asset rich and cash poor. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, look, some problems now. You know, uh, look, I, I, I just must add that I was talking to a colleague yesterday and uh, he was of the opinion that uh, Elbow would. Uh, uh, has sort of settled himself in for about 10 years uh, in the lodge, and uh, that would mean probably two or three victories um, <clears throat> uh, beyond uh, beyond last year. And um, at, uh, there's, there's, certain, there's a certain truth to that because the Liberal Party is so weak at the moment. I saw some resolve polling last week just on the Victorian Liberal Party, Jack. Their primary votes are 26%. Hmm. Pretty ordinary. All right, over to the UK now, Jack, and not for the cricket. We'll get to that. It's, uh, uh, my eyes are like they're on stalks at the moment. I'm on, on about two or three hours sleep. I don't know how the cricketers are going, but I'm exhausted already and we've, we've still got a day to play in the first test. But uh, the resignation honours list, uh, which which uh, uh, Boris Johnson uh, and others, it must be said, other resigning prime ministers, often in disgrace, have had this ability to name peers, Jack, and well, knights, well, well, and 
what's uh, what dimes of of uh, uh, and it's this. I looked at this. The the, the rotting has been going on famously now for over a century and probably longer, uh, and uh, and they still keep it going. Yeah, we touched on this last week uh, and said much the same thing. I just found this one really interesting. Uh, it's a woman uh, called Charlotte Owen, who's now Dame Charlotte Owen. She oh, was made a peer in, uh, in Boris Johnson's resignation on his list. She was born in 1993, um, uh, and she was, uh, to say her CV's a little thin uh, <laughs> would, be, um, uh, would be an understatement. Hang on, um, Jack. Hang on just a minute. I've got a CV. She she worked as an intern for Strategic Communications Consultancy Portland before working as a constituency intern for Tory MP William Ragg for one month. For six months, Owen worked as a parliamentary intern. So that's an unpaid advisor, Jack, or an unpaid yes. – shall we call her a runner or a, or a, yeah. or a, or a gopher? Uh, to Boris Johnson before becoming a parliamentary assistant. That's her first paid gig uh, to Alex Sharma for seven months. And now she's a dame, Jack. Well, she did do um, a, a couple of years uh, working for um, for Boris and other ministers, but just as a special advisor. But, yeah, um, it's a really odd system, isn't it? You know? Well, it's a little bit like Paul Collingwood, Jack. Uh, didn't uh, Shane Warne, the late great <coughs> SK Warne, uh, get up in because uh, Paul Collingwood got an OBE for being part of the 2005 squad but only played two games? Uh, I only played two innings, I think. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Warner used to say, you got this for uh, making 28 and 12. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good sledge. We'll get on to the sledging shortly. Um, <clears throat> I just have to... Well, look, just firstly, a, what do you make of the Boris, uh, Boris Johnson uh, resignation, Jack? I, I saw a piece from Greg Sheridan, which I'm still scratching my head about, uh, where he said that um, that the people had been denied, in the case of both Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, that the people had been denied were being denied of making their own judgments, yeah, which um, is a strange way of looking at things. The House of Commons made a judgment overnight. They voted on the uh, report of the committee, um, uh, 354 to 7. <laughs> well, there are fewer abstainers there, I gather, but but uh, that's fairly significant. There's no comeback now, is there, for Bogo, you wouldn't think? No, I think he's probably done. He's probably that's done. That's okay. He'll be... He'll be, he'll be Antigua. Uh, uh, He'll be a richer man for being out of Parliament. He probably will be a richer man. He'll be able to spend more time working on his tan in Antigua. We we cannot let this topic of Bojo and his resignation go by without reading uh, at least a part of the wonderful Marina Hyde. I think she's the best columnist, certainly in the UK. Um, and she said, can I just check something before we begin? Because it feels as though we're dealing with a weight of irony that defies all known physics. Is Boris Johnson leaving British politics absolutely howling with anger because someone supposedly told him a lie? Is Boris Johnson wetting his pants thrice daily over the injustice of him being supposedly misled? Is Boris Johnson now appalled at someone else's supposedly casual relationship with the truth? It seems incredibly that he is, in which case I honestly don't think I could take this story more seriously. It's too perfect. 
Boris Johnson has been Boris Johnsoned. God bless uh, that needs alive. no further comment. Scribbles for the Guardian. Uh, folks, uh, if you haven't come across any of her columns, uh, check her out. She's fantastic. Um, I did. Uh, I did like a contribution from Rod Stewart, though. He's a, a bit of a <laughs> bit of a fan of Boris. Uh, he says, "I was and still and still am a fan of Boris." Uh, said uh, Rod Stewart, "Maybe he should talk to me. I've been making comebacks, but comebacks for years." Oh yeah, yeah. Good on you, Rod. Um, uh, into more matters around immigration and refugee policy around. Uh, uh, in the UK, uh, we've got London Mayor Sadiq Khan uh, urges his staff not to say, not to use the term illegal immigrants, but instead refer to people. I'm sorry, I just this, this language, this sort of euph- these euphemisms just absolutely kill me. But instead, refer to people not as illegal immigrants, but refer to them instead as people with insecure immigration status, Jack. It's beautiful. I, mean, I always thought our unauthorised arrivals in Australia was fairly good, actually, but that's, uh, um, that's insecure that's migration status, that's much better. Yeah, well, it, there's a downside to all of this, Jack, because uh, a boat disaster uh, has been essentially um, uh, prosecuted now in Greece. Uh, nine Egyptian men have, have been accused of causing a disaster last week as we record this and we're recording on the 20th of June, when a vessel carrying hundreds of people sank off the Greek Greek coast. Now, those people, those nine Egyptian men have pleaded not guilty. In fact, uh, uh, a lawyer for one says he was uh, actually not a people smuggler. He was uh, one of the refugees. But at this stage, Jack, we've got 78 dead um, when the ship uh, when the ship sank with more than 500 missing. And it's believed there are up to 300 children uh, many of them who remain missing were stored, um, and there's no other way of putting that. It, it sounds like they're cargo, and they actually are. They were stored um, below deck. I mean, uh, I, I, the last report I, I have seen of the hundred uh, odd survivors, all of them were were um, men between the age of sixteen and fifty. No, yeah. no women, no children survived. Uh, I, I, I almost hesitate to say how can this be stopped because I, I don't think that it can. I don't think that it can. You've got people basically in Africa. And you've certainly still got people coming from from the Middle East, war-torn places like Syria, um, uh, and many going through Turkey who have had to bear uh, a, great, um, a great deal of uh, the pressure of, uh, of refugee intakes. But also you've got Africans just just going to Europe for a better life, Jack, and and going through these horrifically risky um, um, boat arrival um, you know, opportunities to, to hit Europe to hit the European continent. Continent, sorry. So I don't know that there is a there is a way to stop that, Jack. There will always be the demand for this sort of stuff. Yeah. I mean, you're an immigration lawyer, Jack. How do you how do you fix this, or is, is this can't be? Uh, well, the only the only real way you can do it is to um, is to take away the benefits of arriving um, uh, in that way, and that's a harsh thing to do. But that's the only way you can stop it from happening. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, over to the United States now, uh, and the Trump indictment, which we uh, touched on 
last week, the uh, the uh, ripple effect of that is flowing through, Jack, and and it does look like uh, the vanity of the man allowed, you know, created these circumstances where he'd love to show people confidential and, and top secret documents uh, and love to just have them in his possession, described as a bit of a hoarder. But I noticed that a number of his um, uh, primary uh, opponents have come out against him. Uh, uh, Mike Pence, uh, uh, he came out and said, oh, yes, I'm going to clean out the DOJ and we're going to sort this once and for all. But he said that uh, basically Trump had been profligate uh, and had led to the risks of uh, – uh, risks to U.S. service men and women across the world, and I think that's one of the angles that is really going to be a problem for Trump going forward. Mm. Yep. Um, Washington Post, well, you wouldn't expect them to be jumping for joy. Uh, uh, well, you would expect them to be jumping for joy, but they're not going to be jumping to his defence. Though they've said one of Donald Trump's new attorneys proposed an idea in the fall of 2022. The former president's team could try to arrange a settlement with the Justice Department. Uh, but Trump was not interested after listening to other lawyers who urged a more pugilistic approach. So it, so the approach was never made to prosecutors. I mean, it yeah. really is, you know, get, load the gun and just fire it directly into your foot. Yeah. Um, uh, it's an interesting story in the Washington Post. I rather like the fact that this 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 lawyer was a former Solicitor General of the state of Florida, um, and he was paid $3 million up front. He was smart enough to get his lawyer's fees in advance. Um, uh, that's the trick, Jack. If you're going to work for Trump, yep. you got to get got to see the money in the bank first. Otherwise, can, can bad things you? can happen. And not just that you won't get paid, but that you actually might have committed <laughs> some number of felonies on his behalf. Can, can I just say that um, uh, Trump did a um, an interview overnight with uh, a Fox News anchor, Brett Beyer, right? Um, and um, it's going to be all over the papers for the next few days, I would think. Uh, Trump said to Beyer when, when Beyer asked him how he planned to appeal to independent voters in 2024, Trump said, first of all, I won in 2020 by a lot. Ooh. You know that's not what Beyer inject, interjected as Trump talked over him. Um, you lost the 2020 election, Beyer told Trump. This is how you're going to tell an independent suburban voter that they should vote for you, he asked. Um, mm. uh, and yeah. Trump, w- Trump went off on a bit of a rant saying a lot less people watch the network now that he's not on it so much. <laughs> so, um, it's kind of the default position when he's uh, got, I've got no argument. Uh, so it- so for, for as long as he's arguing the 2020 election, yeah. uh, he's not going to win the nomination. He can't win. He's just looking backwards. And he's saying, you know, basically vote for me. I'll bring revenge. You know, I'll, 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 I'll avenge, I'll avenge this terrible slide upon my person. It's just, there's no way that's going to work. No. I did look at the polling, Jack, um, last, uh, or just this morning, actually. Um, there's been a number of polls, the Rasmussen reports, which tend to sort of tilt a little bit to the Republican Party. Uh, they've got uh, Trump plus six in a general election v Biden. 
um, uh, Biden's job approval down, his disapprove uh, at 12% or disapprove is that plus 12%. Um, the twenty. Uh, this was a Harvard-Harris poll, which is uh, sort of A-grade poll. Twenty twenty-four Republican presidential nomination: Trump fifty-nine, DeSantis fourteen. The rest single figures. Uh, so Trump by forty-five uh, in the twenty twenty-four Democratic presidential nomination. Biden sixty-two, Kennedy fifteen. Kennedy down a few points there, Jack. Uh, might be people going, oh, that, yeah, now we know who that guy is. Um, and, um, and, and the general election there in the Harvard Harris poll, Trump v. Biden plus, uh, Trump plus six. Uh, general election, Trump v. Harris in that uh, unlikely event. Uh, Trump plus seven. General election, DeSantis v. Biden. DeSantis plus one. And general election, DeSantis v. Harris. DeSantis plus two. Those are not bad figures for RDS, Jack. No, at this stage. At this early stage, yeah, that's right. So there's, there's a couple of these fellas. Uh, Christie's at 2% and he makes a big noise. He's really just a head kicker. I wrote about him last week. He's just he, that's His role is to be there at least until February uh, in the primary just kicking Trump's head around the place. Um, yeah, but yeah. you've got others who are not measuring in the polling at all at this stage. Yeah. Um, Lots of talk, now we're getting back to the indictment uh, in Florida of, of Trump and uh, classified and top secret documents. And I did read a pretty re- well-reasoned article in Politico about the prospect of a pardon that Biden, perhaps, and he'd be the only one who can, would step forward and pardon Donald Trump just to take some poison out of their political system. What do you think about that argument, Jack? You did actually suggest it some time ago, while I think of it. Uh, I did. Um, I suggested it could be a, a sort of a winning move. To, if you want to take Trump out of it, that's the best way to do it. We not only take Trump out of it, you take a lot of the poison out of the system too. Hmm. Um, you know, this piece in the in Politico, and it's still up there, um, uh, made the point that um, uh, America's uh, – Political institutions haven't been as widely threatened um, uh, since, you know, probably the, the days before the Civil War. Uh, <clears throat> there was an interesting piece there too that um, uh, of those people who remember them, we're going back a few years, but Aaron Burr, who listeners may know as the uh, uh, as the, uh, the, the, the from from the um, from the musical, Jack, help me out here, please. Um, <coughs> who, Hamilton. Yes, from, from Hamilton, who actually um, uh, shot um, uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, in a duel and, and Hamilton subsequently died. Aaron Burr was charged with uh, treason um, uh, a number of years later in regard to um, establishing um, uh, territories around Texas and he was ultimately acquitted. Uh, and uh, and and of course um, the uh, the leader of the Confederacy, uh, he too was charged with treason, and uh, he was ultimately acquitted um, with the support of the then president Andrew Johnson. Mm. Um, yeah, no pardons. Well, of course Nixon did accept some advice, um, saying <laughs> he's getting a bit desperate by this stage. Dad, you go, can I pardon myself? 
and the answers were a little bit mixed, but generally no. Yeah. No one really knows how the law on pardons would work mm. in practice. Um, uh, there are various theories about it, um, and, and no one can be quite sure which one um, a court would follow. Um, but there's a further problem with that is this would be a hard matter to get into court because it's very difficult to see who would have sufficient standing. That is, someone needs to say, I'm aggrieved by this pardon, um, and the court, a court, court needs to agree with that and hear their plea about it. Um, and it's almost impossible to imagine anybody having standing you know, in a situation like that. Mm. Well, we just went through the polling numbers, Jack, and Trump's numbers are pretty good. Um, uh, yeah, it shows but, but the, the question is, will they hold up? Um, yeah. and, and my guess is no. Um, I don't think there will be a pardon, by the way. I thought, I, I, and I wrote this some time ago. I thought it would be a good idea, um, but it would really require some um, a great deal of political skill to sell it to the American people as a good idea, and it would also require some political courage. Um, and the present president, they're not the strong suits of the present president. Well, Joe Biden was asked this uh, last week, Jack. I don't know if you saw it. He said, uh, would you pardon Donald Trump? And he just burst in, <laughs> burst out laughing and wandered off. Hmm. Well, uh, he, but he burst out laughing and wandered off no matter, no matter what he's asked. So that's um, There was a little bit of that. Uh, there was a little bit of that. But um, it, it is something that to consider. You, if you really want to take the poison, the toxins out of their political system, out of, the, out of their politics at the moment, that just seems to me to be a terrific uh, uh, release valve. Um, yes, but- because that, that, one of the reasons why it would kill off um, – um, certain people have been suggesting that a deal needs to be done, that the, the pardon needs to be in agreement for Trump not being a candidate. Oh, you couldn't do and I think, I, And I think that would be wrong because yeah. that would be using the power of the presidency to influence the election. Yeah, yeah, that would be, yeah, that yeah, would be corrupt in my view. couldn't do it that way. It would be corrupt in my view. But if the, if, if the president just decided to pardon him without that conversation taking place, a pardon always carries a whiff of guilt about it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it would effectively neuter Trump. Yes, because all of a sudden, you know, the deep what what do you mean? The deep state's just pardoned me. The yes. deep state that I'm going to, you know, that I'm going to clean the swamp and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, this is a bloke who's looking backwards anyway. But uh, but, you know, in terms of in terms of what he's trying to prosecute, in terms in terms of what he's trying to uh, uh, discuss uh, to uh, to voters, um, uh, he, he would find himself effectively neutered. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for it, but Jack, will the will the will the support drop off him? I I reckon just over the last week or so, I'm like you, I'm pretty convinced that, um, you know, by the end of this year, he'll have a problem. He may well have um, bigger problems in Georgia, Fulton County, in Georgia, um, and yeah. those things. Well, I, I, I've noticed over the last couple of weeks, I've, there's a couple of people I've been keeping an eye on. Uh, one's a Twitter feed called the Gay Republican, who's it's been reasonably pro-Trump. Um, and, and, and this post came up this week. Convince me Trump can win the general election. Don't yell at me. Don't call me names. Don't say any generic things like DeSantis is a rhino because that's not true. Convince me in a clear and calm manner that Trump can win the general election. And, and a guy called Kurt Schickler, who's a soldier, he's a colonel, 
Um, he's a lawyer. Uh, he writes novels, all sorts of things, and he's a bit of a thought leader for the MAGA types. And he's been having a, a bit of a barney with some of the MAGA types on Twitter, uh, and they're saying, um, uh, you know, what do you mean he can't win a general election? Um, uh, and, and, and you won't explain why Trump can't win a general election. And Schlickler's response was, sure, I do. 53% of Americans do not viscerally hate Ron DeSantis like they hate Donald Trump. Right. And many would consider a successful Republican governor instead of a Democrat. That's the answer, really, is that, is that some of the pro-Trump people yep. now can see that he has, he has um, uh, irreversibly um, uh, cut himself off from about half of the country. Yeah. 53% I think is probably a little low. Now, we've just gone through the polling that puts him in the White House in 2024. Yeah. <laughs> but polling is particularly fraught in the United States mm. for a start. And so you have three groups. You have <coughs> registered Republicans, registered Democrats, and then you have independent voters. And that independent yeah. group is larger than either of the um, yes, the the two party groups now. Yes, and, that's and that's they're the group are saying we're not doing this again. We are not going to have an election uh, based on lies and nonsense that Donald Trump cobbled together with Rudy Giuliani. Mm. Um, and that's what that's why he really can't win. So the Democrats are hoping like hell that um, that. Uh, uh, the, the, the Trumpster gets through the primary because they know they they know that Biden will essentially beat him. That essentially anyone beat him. Yeah, maybe not RFK Jr. But so that's why they're that's why they're all in on Trump winning the nomination. Yeah, fifty three percent. Look, it's a good argument. It may not be exactly right, but it's exactly it, it, it's that's why it cannot. Why the Demo, why the Republicans have been you know pretty quiet on all of this, or, or you know seemingly supportive of Trump because yeah. they're fearful. Uh, they'll, you know, they're starting to come around. All right, we better get moving on, Jack. Because uh, uh, I heard reports uh, in the Ukraine that that Russia's casualties were through the roof as a result of this counteroffensive, Jack. Yes, um, yeah. The the reporting's a bit thin at this stage. It is, yeah, uh, yeah. Um. And, and the fighting is around Zaporizhia, which is uh, in obviously in eastern Ukraine, around the uh, Dnipro River, Dnipro River, um, and um, uh, it, it, it's pretty slow going. Um, um, I noticed too that Putin hosted a number of African nations. Jack, and we'll get to South Africa a bit later because it was actually the South African president who said to Putin, you must end this war. And Putin said, well, we're, we're, we're keen to have a chat, but the Ukrainians don't want to talk about it. Mm. Mm. Hard, hard to know what to make of that, those sort of conversations. Well, Sergei Brachuk, a government spokesperson for Ukraine Southwestern, Odessa region, said Ukrainian forces destroyed a very significant ammunition depot near the Russian-occupied port city of Henishesk in nearby Kherson province. Our, aimed, uh, our armed forces dealt a good blow in the morning, Bratchuk said in a vid video message posted to his Telegram channel. Western analysts and military officials have cautioned that Ukraine's counteroffensive to dislodge Russian forces from occupied areas 
along a thousand kilometre front could last a long time. And we'll mm. stick with that. Energy Jack, have you got the gas burner in your place in Hong Kong? You of course we environmental go. vandal that you are. Mm. You got the gas on there? Yep. So do we. I mean that that's that's been the ideal, hasn't it? So you have the electric the electric oven and you have the gas and you have the gas power points. Yeah, not only, not only do we have the gas stoves here, almost everyone in Hong Kong uses a instantaneous gas hot water heater because uh, there is no room in Hong Kong flats for a um, water tank to use the uh, off-peak electric uh, uh, Well, you've got to put them outside too, Jack, if it's gas. You do. You they, all, they all are outside. Electric can go inside, gas goes if inside. You, if you had a look at our uh, building we live in, um, it's got all the air conditioning units and all the little gas heaters all over the outside, all the plumbing to make it easier to swap in and out. Right. Looks pretty terrible, but people don't care. Yeah. Well, look, from a cooking point of view, you know, it's it's good to have the gas on because it's immediate. You'll get you'll get pans hotter quicker. Um, but I think there are some um, um, some uh, significant uh, advances in uh, 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 in the electrical stuff, but. We're rabbiting on here unnecessarily because uh, the Grattan Institute is saying that basically we need to establish a date when gas burners in kitchens are wiped out. Mm. That they can't, and and uh, my we, response to that is, why are we doing this to ourselves? Well, you know, you, 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 obviously you're burning gas, you, you're burning a fossil fuel, Jack. Um, and, and that's what they're saying, that, that the federal government is committed to cut Australia's emissions by 43% by 2030. We know all that. But but um, uh, the various states have gone a little bit higher uh, and they're all – the ACT has banned new gas connections as soon as November and we sort of need a national statement on this. Um, Victoria has said no new gas connections by 2035. Um, and the, the federal government has made a statement yet, Jack. No. Uh, this would be in the category of things I think people say, oh, yes, we should do something about um, cutting fossil fuel use, and they'll stop agreeing with that when someone says, oh, you're not going to be able to buy a new gas stove. You don't want a gas stove. You don't want a gas stove, Jack. You want an electric stove, and you want the gas burners. Um, mm. that's, that's the ideal. That's yeah. what any chef will tell you. Um, but, um, yeah, it would seem that uh, those sorts of things are going to be taken away. I don't, I, I don't know that it's uh, that much of a controversy. People on that sort of, uh, shall we say, the agnostic side of the climate change argument sort of babble on about gas stoves. And I just don't think it's all that important. It is What is important, Jack, is water, and South Africa is running out of it. Well, it's got plenty, but it's uh, going through an ageing, decrepit water system that is collapsing, and and a lack of power, lack of electricity. Yeah, but yes, we've gone water. through the brownouts, and you know that's a, that's a way of life in South African cities now. But water, that 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 sort of uh, end times type uh, type uh, situational scenarios there. Um, uh, if you don't have if you don't have uh, fresh and drinkable water uh, running into um, your property. And they're, they're, not only is their water system breaking down, um, uh, uh, first of all, it's got, hasn't got the power to pump the water to where you need it. Uh, and secondly, um, the, there's no maintenance taking place. So they're losing a lot of, to leakage, but also yeah. their sewage systems are, are not fit for purpose. And there's been cholera outbreaks. 29 yeah. people killed in a, 
um, uh, you know, a township just outside Pretoria um, uh, from cholera that was found in the water supply there. That's the thing that caught my eye, Jack. I mean, cholera in this day and age, it's unacceptable. Um, and uh, in, in looks, what's supposed to be really a first world country, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. And and uh, and and also one party government. And I think that's the failure there. You know, the failure to plan, the failure to invest. Yeah. Uh, in basic, and, and what you'll find is that, that you know what will happen is that the wealthy will leave. And that's been happening for a while. The wealthy will leave, then the middle classes leave, and then you got a real problem. Yes. All right, moving on now, Jack, to into sport. Now I don't. You're in a different time zone, so you're you're finishing about two o'clock in the morning. I'm finishing at four o'clock in the morning. I'm just about shot. Um, I watched. Uh, I watched. Uh, and by the time uh, by the time our listeners receive this, we'll know the outcome of the first test at Edgebaston. I did watch um, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 vintage uh, vintage or veteran quick um, go through, uh, go get a couple of very key wickets in Smith and and Labuschagne last night. Um, Stuart Broad, that is of course. Um, and it's you know it's just been a magnificent test where really neither side has taken a big step ahead. They've been sort of neck and neck throughout for, for four days. Very rare to see. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought um, there's been hardly, hardly been a clear winner of a session. I no. mean, there's been, you know, I, I thought, you know, we had the better of a couple of sessions than they did. But And you could debate look, it too. So, you yeah, know, you, yeah. that might just be your opinion. And no, 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 because you and I said, I think of the first session, you said, oh, I'll give it to, give it to England. I said, well, Australia took three wickets and... Yeah, so so yeah, I mean, it, it's just been incredibly even, um, and of course, uh, uh, England using ba- uh, using Baz ball, and so they scored their their first inning scored five and over, and their second inning scored four and over. Australia in their first and second innings thus far been around about three and a half and over. Uh, it just leads to scoring the, runs quickly, uh, and but, that leads to results. The and, runs and they're scored. In to do that. The run scored on the first day, you know, was within four or five runs of the run scored on the first day of the Edge Bastion Test in two thousand and five. Oh, there's there's ominous uh, ominous uh, 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 signs symbols of of two thousand five all over again. Mm. It's going to be very close. I mean, Australia's going to have to bat better than England did in their um, in their second innings. Uh, by a little bit at least, because uh, I think the English uh, were, were all out for what two seven seven. Yeah, well, by, by the time you, by the time you, our listeners are, uh, will, they'll know. The we'll know all that. about this. But there was yes. thing, was thing, thing that uh, was something that came that arose from this test. It made me nice and cross. Ollie Robinson is a plotter, I reckon, and we can give him a bit of a kicking because he's a. Because he's uh, been a bit of a scumbag in his in his career with racist Twitter comments and so forth that he apologised for and was duly suspended for, but then he's given Usman Kawaja, who's batted for a day and a bit, mm. batted over three days, and he's given him the send off. And the send off, and excuse my language, is uh, "fuck off, you fucking prick." Mm. Um, this is a bloke who'd waddled in for because um, uh, he's a he's a he's a, a portly gentleman. 
uh, is Mr. Robinson. He'd waddled in, um, uh, bowled without effect for a, a day and a bit, um, and he gets his first wicket. The other blokes made 140. I thought it was a bit odd. But look, to be fair, bowlers tend to do this. They get a bit overexcited. Our blokes. Oh, heat of the moment, heat of the moment. I've heard it yeah. before. You, if a bloke's made 140 against you, and Joe Root, by the way, went over and patted Usman Kawaja on the shoulder mm. and said, well, batted. That's what you do. You say, well, batted. Yeah, you were too good. You were too good for us mm. for most of the time. And by gee, we're good. We're, we're glad to see the end of you. Mm. But fuck off is not yeah. really the right um, way to do that. I've, so we've I've been watching really that man's behaviour. I've been enjoying following Twitter right through this. Uh, I particularly like one on the first day when um, – uh, you know, it was like in the first day of the test, and the bowling was certainly lacking a bit of venom. And you can't always tell. You can't at that stage. You can't tell whether they're just not bending their back enough, or whether the pitch is just so unresponsive that they can't do oh, it. Oh, it's flat, mate. Flat, yeah. flat, flat. Uh, but early, early on in the test, it's very hard to make that judgment until you can sort of you know see how it pans out. But uh, one Twitter Twitter post I like was perhaps someone should send a message to Pat Cummings that that. Um, uh, that Crawley has an enormous carbon footprint and refuses to re- recycle under any circumstances, no, just to see if they can get a little bit of venom in Pat. You know? oh, uh, Pat Cummins has been fantastic, uh, bowled very, very well. Um, I, I think they might have had second thoughts when the English tail wagged a little bit yesterday uh, in their second innings. And, and that's that would be the time you throw the ball to Mitchell Stark and yeah. he just goes bang, bang, bang. But you can't pick them all. You can't pick them all and they're going to have to rotate them and, and probably Hazelwood – I thought Hazelwood's class came to the came to the fore in the first dig, so it's not as if he's it's been a shocking selection. Um, yeah. and, as, and as those tail enders were going, um, uh, Sir Stokesy, as my English friends call him, um, uh, we unveiled the new fielding plan, all the, all the fellas in front of the bat and all that sort of stuff. And, and Kevin Peterson was, was raving on, on Twitter saying, what a plan, how well executed. Um, and some chap called Adam Zwar, I think. In, Adam, Adam Zwar, yeah, no, he's a, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a comedian, yeah. producer. Uh, and uh, his response was, look, it, it's as though England just knocked over Bradman, Tendulkar and Lara instead of Lyon, Hazelwood and Bowler. Who <laughs> are all number 11s, really, to be fair. Yeah, um, the fair old tail. And um, that's one issue with, with not playing Stark. You, you do have yeah. a fair old tail. Oh, I think Stark, I think Stark averages mid 20s in, uh, in tests in, um, uh, in, in England, and, and none of those three are ever going to do that. No. Um, uh, but I noticed that the Minister for Resources in Northern Australia was, um, uh, was on Twitter at the time, um, Madeline King, MP. And uh, her response to Adam Zwar's comment was, so glad it's not just me yelling at the two. <laughs> Look, KP can be a bit annoying. Um, uh, I, great I cricketer, know, great cricketer, but he can be a bit annoying. Oh, I, look, Matt Hayden. We must be. We must say he was uh, covering the uh, the uh, the Test Championship, of course. And there was Ponting in the box. I think Sonny or Gavaskar was in the box, and there, there might have been another Indian cricketer or, or at least an India presenter. And uh, and and. 
and everyone was was uh, was was rich in their praise of Australia for winning the game. And Ed Hayden just went into this rant about the baggy green car- the baggy green how it was uh, you know the symbol of national unity and 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 and, and a great nation of just twenty five million people had defeated the foes of one point four billion people. It was the most disgusting patriotic rant. And and, and after he'd finished. There was just silence from Ricky Boningson or Gavaskar, et cetera, just going, what, mate, out you get, you know? Yeah. Go and well, calm what, down. Go and take a Ritlin and, and, and calm yourself down. Well, one of the best sledges, um, uh, um, uh, the, the two, one of the two great sledges were, were uh, in cricket. We just dished out in England to um, the opening pair of Langer and Hayden. Um, uh, they used to uh, call out from the terraces, "Hey ho, hey ho!" It's off to work we go. When um, and when the little dwarf um, uh, um, uh, Langer walked out, and they used to refer to Matthew Hayden as Buzz Lightyear, who you might remember as the muscular but slightly dim um, uh, space <laughs> ranger from the Toy Story uh, 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 um, uh, movies. And I always thought that had just enough truth in it to be um, uh, to be spot on. Look, I love I love Matt the Bat at the crease, but as a commentator, mate, look, nah, take he's a terrible. couple of Ritland and calm yourself down. And, and JL too, who I love, oh, I deeply love as a commentator because he's just so passionate. But you know, just. Just calm down a little bit. Um, Ricky Ponting remains the doyen of cricket commentators. His knowledge in the game is extraordinary. Well, now that Warney's gone, he is. Warney was the best of them all, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, he could lapse into silly talk, but um, but Ponting's just no nonsense. Um, look, Jack, this is going to hurt you a lot, but I, mean, I think it's about time. The, the Essendon Footy Club uh, are looking at it, are looking at the fact that their bombers. Uh, nickname and logo may have to change because it's too warlike, Jack. Oh dear! So what are they going <laughs> to? We've always Carlton people always call them the bummers. Um, so maybe that's something they would consider. But I did see this. I think it's probably a bit of a non-story. But Matthew Lloyd on Footy Classified, which is Channel Nine AFL Footy Show, which runs I think pretty much exclusively in in Victoria, um, ha- had to be uh, handed the smelling salts there for a while just to just to bring him back to life. But he said, "I'll be very disappointed if the bomber was gone." Lloyd said, "What are your thoughts, Jack?" Uh, I'd just be curious as to what they're going to replace it with. Oh, that's what I'm saying. I, I say the bummers. We, we can't okay. people have been um, calling them the bummers for a long time. Who was the team who were known as the Maybloons? That was Hawthorne. That was, was Hawthorne, wasn't it? As they were uh, terrific in May and not so good in June, July, etc. Uh, um, but the Bombers, of course, yes, and the footy club got the, got their nickname and subsequently their logo um, uh, because of their proximity it's in the forties, wartime, but, but their proximity to the old Essendon Airport. Which is it still a thing, Jack? I think there's bars out there now. The Essendon Aerodrome, I think it was called in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, it used to have the only bar where you get a beer on a Sunday in Melbourne um, uh, back in the <laughs> days when it was a functioning uh, airport. The bar still exists in some well, form. Well, right? the, the, only, the only bar where you could get a legal beer on a Sunday. Um, uh, there were plenty, There was no shortage of bars where you could um, knock on the back door and get in, um, mm. uh, uh, including one that um, I used to – See your father at from time to time on the corner of um, uh, uh, Hoddle Street and uh, uh, Punt Road and um, 
and uh, Victoria Street there, the the, the, the Carney's family, Lord Raglan Hotel. Oh, the Lord Raglan. Yeah, yeah gone to God a long time up. ago. Um, well, yeah, we'll have to see if the <laughs> – this is the sort of thing in Melbourne that will basically – you could just tear tear that city apart, um, this, <laughs> this sort of thing. So we'll have to see how it goes. If the Essendon – this is a bit of a non-news story or if the Essendon Footy Club is seriously looking at changing their names. God only knows what it would be too. But something diverse, Jack, something inclusive. Yeah, which should be. The last time I was at Essendon Airport um, for the purposes of flying somewhere, um, it was to, we had, um, uh, uh, my brother-in-law had um, uh, hired a de Havilland, a 1940s de Havilland Dove aircraft to take 12 of us down to Warrnambool for a day at the, at the Warrnambool Carnival. Very, very nice. Uh, and only a little bit scary on that tiny little plane. Uh, well, I thought the, the trip the, back would be easier. Well, um, Bit of carriage, uh, given that they were handing out um, uh, cans of Victor Bravo as you hopped on the plane at 11 o'clock in the morning, it wasn't too scary. There you go. Now, take us out, Jack. Uh, well, something's going crazy in – how's your Welsh, by the way? Let me let me hear uh, it. Yeah, no, no, non-existent. Um, um, but, you know, um, the, um, the, the a restaurant in Wales has been named best in Britain for the second year running. Um, uh, thanks to Chef Gareth Ward's 375 quid a head 30 course menu. 375. Uh, the, that's that's about eight, well, it's about 700 bucks. It's it's a chunky number for a feed, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by the way, the restaurant is called Unis Here, Jack. Yeah, Welsh. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, so but the very best expensive of- fare, but. But the best thing about it is um, uh, the restaurant refuses to cater to any dietary requirements, and I and I salute them for that. Oh dear, I dear. So what? Like you know, you, you pay eight hundred dollars a head, and they poison you. Yeah, you know? probably traces of nuts, etc. Yeah. Ah, uh, well, there we go, and that takes us out of the two jacks episode thirty-four, our combination episode thirty-four for the day. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Hong Kong Jack for your time. Good on you, mates. Cheers. And um, and uh, we'll be back next week. And we do remind our listeners to drop us a line. I think I've got a bit of a list of things that we'll have to deal with next week or from our wonderful listeners. Uh, we're getting some, uh, you know, some some lovely compliments from listeners, but we, you know, we're not we're not stuck on that. We're not narcissists. And 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 basically, if you want to come out and give us a slapping, feel free to do so. And you can do that by hitting me up uh, on Twitter. My DMs are always open. And Hong Kong Jack on your Substack there. Give me the address. Yeah, hongkongjack.substack.com. Drop him a line there too, or you can hit us up on the conditional release program at gmail.com. Uh, and thank you for listening today. And we look forward to catching up with you next week. See you later.